This is Todd Haberkorn, Mr. Spock on Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to the Trek Geeks podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Failure to tune in would be highly illogical. the biggest little show this side of the alpha quadrant it's the trek geeks podcast i know oh rave reviews rave reviews thank you everyone out there applauding we genuinely appreciate it i am your co-host bill smith and with me as he is every episode is my friend and partner in crime the lovable dan davidson dan how are you buddy i am fantastic bill uh it is a very exciting day here at the trek geeks podcast don't you think i really do um we've We've had a lot of people jumping to be on our podcast, and that's not an exaggeration. And, it isn't. And today's guest is one of those folks who couldn't get on the podcast fast enough. So we actually mm-hmm. preempted the episode we had scheduled to drop this weekend in favor of this episode today. And why don't you go ahead and tell us about it? Yeah. Uh, anybody who is of the age that we are remembers what it was like when the Star Trek the first movie came out and then Star Wars or Star Wars came out first and then Star Trek the motion picture and then this funny little TV show called Battlestar Galactica came on the air uh, and we have the one and only Captain Apollo himself Richard Hatch uh, joining us today to talk about the many different things that he's involved with especially the Star Trek Axanar project um, you've all seen Prelude to Axanar where he does a great job as Karn the Undying and uh, we were able to reel him in, and we have a great conversation with him, uh, and we hope you all enjoy it. Definitely. He was, uh, he was very energetic. He was a joy to talk to. He came on immediately before we started recording and started giving me a bunch of grief, which was hilarious. <laughs> Wilhelmina. <laughs> <laughs> we'll maybe talk more about that later. Um, but we want to also remind you to please stay tuned after our conversation with Richard because we're going to have a special announcement um, about a giveaway that we're doing um, for the Trek Geeks podcast. So stay tuned for that. But for now, please enjoy our conversation with Richard Hatch from Axonar. All right, folks. Uh, welcome to another guest spot here on the Trek Geeks podcast. Bill and I are uh, honored to introduce today's guest and spend some time talking about his amazing career and current project. He is basically a sci-fi legend, folks. He's an accomplished actor, writer, producer, author, acting coach, and motivational speaker. Uh, he's been on classic television shows such as All My Children back in the early 70s, as well as The Streets of San Francisco in 1976, but we will always know him as Captain Apollo on the original sci-fi phenomenon Battlestar Galactica, and then as Tom Zarek on the reboot of BSG back in the early 2000s. 
Most recently, you've seen him in the critically acclaimed teaser documentary Prelude to Axanar as the Klingon warlord Karn the Undying, a role which he will be reprising in the upcoming film Axanar. It is a pleasure to welcome to the Trek Geeks podcast the one and only Richard Hatch. Richard, thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. And uh, boy, listening to all those credits almost put me to sleep. I mean, it's... <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, you know, it, that, that's actually very nice of you to say all those kind words. It always sounds weird when they say, you know, uh, sci-fi uh, icon or sci-fi this or that because, uh, um, first of all, I don't see myself like that. Second of all, I don't think when they used to call me back in the day, you know, they go, the TV hunks, you know, the, these guys. I go, who are you talking about? Because I don't know any so-called hunk who ever thought he was a hunk. And, uh, you know, most real... Actors, you know, don't think of themselves as stars. They think of themselves as, as actors, as artists, and that's their craft. And they, they, you know, they feel very blessed and lucky that uh, they've had a career because this is a very crazy up and down business that we're in. So, but anyway, I thank you for the kind words and uh, moving on. What do you want to ask me? Well, playing off of that, Richard, you know, I was thinking about this and the original Battlestar ran for, for just one season. And that really kind of blows my mind because its popularity has endured and even grown exponentially over the years. To what do you attribute that? I think uh, there are shows that are, are movies too, as well, that are what we call um, uh, not just iconic. They are, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? Um, they are archetypal. And that means that the story structure, the way the story kind of moves from the beginning to the middle to the end, the underpinnings of that story, the emotional buttons it hits, the psychological buttons it hits, it's archetypal in the sense that it seems to touch into or tap into a archetypal structure that seems to exist in all people. And when there's a movie that kind of taps into that, you're drawn to it. It, it moves you. you. In fact, you want to see the same movie over and over again. Even though you know where the story is going, that movie makes you feel a certain way inside. And so you want to watch it. And uh, all I can tell you is, is Battlestar was very archetypal. I mean, Moses and the Israelites was archetypal. Right. I mean, you have a civilization under great stress who gets cast out of their homeland. They wander in the deserts, in this case, the deserts for 40 years being tested, losing many of their people, you know, and those that survive are a much hardier uh, bunch of, of human beings who are then ready to establish a new homeland. Well, that structure, that archetypal structure can be operated on many, many different levels. And, and obviously in our own lives, I tell people, we all have a home. We get cast out of our home. We leave our home, get pushed out of our home. Uh, and then we wander out there in the world trying to find ourselves. We go through the ups and downs and craziness. We get tested. We get challenged. And finally, you start to find a career. You hopefully find a mate or a relationship. And then you establish a new home, right? Well, that's kind of an archetypal story structure. So people kind of seem to be um, touched and moved by that and drawn to that. And uh, obviously, we're talking about in space, sci-fi it operates in a more expanded way, right? A larger, bigger, more expanded way. Yep. Uh, and obviously we add the element of Holocaust um, and, you know, people surviving a Holocaust. 
And that even adds a whole other dimension to it. Um, people always, as you know, just about every, they do, how many of these movies do they do? These end of the world movies. Oh yeah. End of the world movies. It's the end of the world. It's, it's an asteroid. It's a disease. It's a, you know, earthquake. It's something. And then we all have to deal with, right. Surviving or how do we continue to live? What do we do? How, and we all empathetically connect to those stories and put ourselves in those places wondering what would I do in that situation? What would I do? How would I handle it? And I think everybody relates to that. So that, again, is part of that Battlestar uh, archetypal story uh, structure. And so therefore, even though it was only on one year, it affected people in a very profound way. And I want to throw in the, the extra layer to it, which is everybody that ever looked up into the sky wonders what's out there. Yeah. And are there brothers of man living you know, out there beyond the stars? Are we alone? And again, again, that's just another kind of foray into exploring that hypothetical possibility, probability, and that's what great science fiction always does. So again, you had all those elements working. So I think, you know, even though the show was not, I mean, unlike Star Trek, and I, I'm a big Star Trek fan. I watched it in syndication when it uh, was in syndication. I didn't see it when it was originally on, but I was a young actor in New York. And I came home every single day, got my glass of red wine, and watched, <laughs> sat down and watched Captain Kirk, you know, and Spock and McCoy and all my favorites, um, you know, never thinking in a million years that I would ever meet any of these people uh, and get to know them. But again, you know, I was a, I was a big fan of that, and I, I just lost my point. What was I going to say? It's such an important point. <laughs> Where's that point? Where, where was – roll me back. Where was the uh, – what how it, the, how the influence of the show? How the influence of the show? How it how it kind of how people have something to grab onto? Looking oh, up grab the onto sky. the thing. Yeah. So you know, um, I think I think uh, Battlestar again back in that day, un- unlike Star Trek, that the word just came back. Star Trek wasn't actually successful right, uh, right. when it came out, and even though, but it was on three seasons because for whatever reasons, you know, programming is weird. Buck Rogers stayed on three more seasons than Battlestar. Mm-hmm. Not because we had much higher ratings. We just happened to be on ABC rather than the other network, which they needed shows because they weren't doing so well. So they were able to stay with shows that didn't have such high rating. ABC had seven out of the top ten shows. So they took us off after one year. But we, on any other network, would have been, you know, one of their top shows. And the truth was is that. We had 65 back in the day before they sliced up the, the audience, you know, with all the cable stations and everything that's going on today. Uh, 65 million people watched our show. 65 million. Wow. Today, a show with 15 million would be a top-rated show. Right, right. Yeah. Or 20 million. That's 65 million. And we were number five, right? Number five in the ratings that it, when we debuted, which was considered for a first year, you know, first year show debut. Yep. That's pretty, pretty extraordinary. And the highest rated sci-fi debut of all time ever. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the problem was they had a great premise. It was the kind of story that people, whether they were sci-fi fans or not, that's the other, there's another layer. The other layer is that the story was a story of family. Okay, family and extended family surviving a Holocaust. And so it related to everybody. And you didn't have to be a sci-fi fan to love Battlestar Galactica. 
they kind of it was really about people and about this family of man surviving and i think a lot of people who never watched sci-fi watched battlestar and could and the whole family again because it wasn't too provocative or edgy even though surviving a holocaust is a pretty you know obviously powerful topic to explore but it th- there was something for the whole family that could sit down and watch this show and that's what made it so successful but again networks and television uh, studios did not understand sci-fi back then. Um, you know, even, um, what was it? 20th didn't understand star Wars because why in the world would they have basically given Lucas the merchandising rights? <laughs> you know, why would they not knowing the, the immense amount of money that would be generated by merchandising? They just, and battles and universal obviously knew less because a show like that, had they even made one more season, they made so much money in syndication on Battlestar and then all the toys and games that yeah. continued to be made over the years off of a one-year show. No one-year show in history ever had so many games and toys and figurines and everything created. And even in this day, they're still making stuff from the original show. So, again, they didn't know what they had. They had a theatrical movie that actually the first pilot we made was made both as a pilot and as a movie. It was... Yeah filmed that way, aspected that way. And it went around the world in many places, played first as a movie, not as a TV series. Mm -hmm. And it did incredibly well. Well, tell me why they didn't make a second movie and put it out there. Right. If they did so well with the first movie like Star Wars, you know, again, they just didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they had. Um, And again, like I said, this show touched a lot of people of three generations. And even when I travel today, I'm blown away by how many people of all ages tapped into this story. And obviously the original, as successful critically as the new show was, and I love the new show. Uh, And I I honestly love where they took it. I love the subject matter, the actors, everything. I love the original show, but I have to be honest, I was frustrated with the writing. I was frustrated with where they were taking it, but that was the era in which we were existing where they were didn't want to be too threatening, too edgy. They didn't they were upset with Starbucks cigar. <laughs> I mean, they just they really honestly uh, thank God for today that we have programming for everybody. There's very very, you know, tempered, very very conservative programming and there's very edgy programming and provocative programming for for to suit all audiences, right? Mm-hmm, there's something definitely. for everybody. And now we see these epic series on cable that are a movie every single week because right. of the technology we have, you know, Game of Thrones, my God. Uh, there's just so many wonderful series on Boardwalk Empire. Uh, now I love Outlander is another one of my new favorite shows, which is the Ron Moore right. show, and I'm so happy for him. He's such a gifted, uh, way ahead of his time producer, writer, and he, uh, he finally, uh, the networks, I'm sure, he's just so, he's so edgy and so beyond, I think, most people. They, they, they don't get uh, what he's doing uh, or they don't think it's going to appeal to a, to a large audience. And yet, you know, I, I think he's, he's the person that everybody's hungry for because his subject matter is always interesting. He always goes far deeper than most people do. It's far edgier. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's about something. It's not just an entertainment. He has something to say mm-hmm. that, that is woven through the fabric of the characters and the relationships and the story topography. Anyway, it's, uh, Battlestar had all that brilliance going for it. And yet, like I said, 
How how many shows stay on for ten years that are not a tenth as good right. as Battlestar? And right. because unfortunately, too many people I think in the industry they're com- they're comfortable with mediocrity. And and by the way, I I don't even want to I don't even want to say all shows that stayed on were mediocre. But I'm saying that that it seems that when a show is too edgy, too provocative, too deep, too profound, that the networks don't stay with those shows very long. Mm-hmm. They send, they tend to stay with safer kinds of shows yeah. uh, for the long distance. And, and when it comes to sci-fi, they're even more, you know, they don't stay with shows very long at all. They mm-hmm. just have no patience for sci-fi shows if they dip below a certain level. Maybe it's because of budgets, although. I bet they spend a lot of money on the things they love and the things they understand, but they certainly, I don't think, for the most part, understand the the real sci-fi audience that's out there, because we very rarely get really quality science fiction. We really don't. Well, that was quality science fiction back then. The science fiction that we have today is certainly quality. Um, The quality with Prelude to Axanar, for one, we'll we'll start spinning into that a little bit. the whole idea of the Prelude documentary was fantastic because we've never really seen that in the Star Trek universe. How did you actually become involved in Axanar, Richard? Well, I didn't know what was going to happen here, but Alec Peters has been a very good friend of mine for about 20 years. Um, he, I met him at uh, Dragon Con. And, you know, every year we would always meet each other at these conventions. And he's a huge collector, uh, big, big sci-fi geek and... And um, obviously does a lot of trading with sci-fi props and collectibles and stuff like that. Very knowledgeable about that world. But one of the smartest guys I've ever met. A very smart businessman. Um, And, you know, when he started talking about, you know, wanting to do something in the entertainment area where he was going to actually put something together, you know, one one hears that all the time from so many people. So you have no idea where they're going to go with that, right? In most cases, it's a lot of talk. But... Alec has always been one of those people that just he is very gifted as a businessman. And I didn't realize how gifted he could actually be as a producer until I started to see him operate with this project. He started out with kind of a fan concept of doing XNR. He always wanted to to deal with Garth of Izar, this character that he got to play, I think, in a couple of uh, Star Trek fan films. Um you know, uh, and and he, but he always wanted to somehow do something with that character because he felt it was, again, undiscovered country. They had never really gone too far into the Garth character, who who was the starship captain that Captain Kirk looked up to uh, when he was in Starfleet Academy, and you know, it always centered around the big battle war of Exonar. but nobody really knew what that was mm-hmm. or what you know, nobody went into it. Well, he went into it, and obviously there's not that much in, um, information in the Star Trek canon. So it left a lot of room for creative, you know, meanderings. And so just like anybody does when you go into some kind of area of, of a story that's never been explored, if there's nothing there to tell you what is and what isn't possible or could happen in that particular time frame, you have to flesh it out creatively yourself. So, you know, they got together and started working with this idea um, of, of XNR. And then I think what they thought of, you know, with this new way of funding films, the new Kickstarter campaigns, mm-hmm. um, 
again, this is another art form. Everybody's kind of got on the Kickstarter campaign trying to raise money from for everything, you know, every conceivable kind of thing. Most people aren't successful at it. But, you know, again, it's not just easy money. It's it's an art form. And the art form is you have to build a case and really sell your idea and really build a bridge to an audience that would really appreciate whatever product, service type of thing you're putting together. And then you got to really promote it. And it really takes an, uh, an artist, somebody, a business artist, somebody that really knows the art form of marketing, of of uh, getting people interested in an idea, selling a product. And I, I have to tell you, I, I don't think I've met anybody who has the skill sets that, that Alec Peters has uh, when it comes to putting these things together. I mean, he's a master. And he put this together and he decided, okay, let's do a little introduction uh, to let people have a little insight because that's what they do on Kickstarters. We'll put a, together a little thing. So let's just, all we need is $10,000, you know, five ten thousand $10,000. And we'll put this a green screen and we'll film some interviews. Well, when he got hooked up with Chris Gossick, uh, who's one of the most gifted, I think, artists, uh, filmmakers, mm-hmm. uh, young filmmakers. He reminds me of a young Ridley Scott. Um, got together with him. Well, like everybody who's really got a creative vision, you take what seems to be a simple idea and all of a sudden, it becomes this this world, this universe. And he kind of took this idea, and he started sketching and building it because he's a he's an artist as well. He has many many graphic novels around town that have been optioned. Um, and he started building this world. And then again, um, the interest started to build as people saw the artwork and started hearing about it and. This little Kickstarter campaign, initial Kickstarter campaign for ten thousand, ended up with one hundred and twenty thousand. Wow! And then they were able to take a significant portion of that, but not the whole thing, and use it to make the prelude. And the prelude grew into what you saw mm. out there—that twenty-one minute prelude, which not too many people put something together as uh, elaborate and as professionally well done as that. Uh, their first time out. But I do have to tell you that I think uh, the concept of proof of technology, um, proof of concept uh, is a real powerful one that, that builds a bridge and a relationship with your, your fans and your, and your fan base who are going to support you in these kind of campaigns. Because, you know, you don't know what people are going to do with money. People have trouble using their own money, they, being, being very uh, good with money, knowing how to use it, not waste it. And so here you've got a chance to see people take the money that people put up. And the nice part about this is no one's going to lose too much if all goes south. You know, you're going to lose 50 bucks, 100 bucks, maybe a couple hundred bucks at most. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a nominal risk for most people for something that they may care about or believe in. And in this case, they got to see their money at work. And not only did they get their money's worth, they got more than their money's worth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For, for, for a, really a, a much smaller budget than what it would normally take a studio to produce something of this quality, they were able to put together this epic prelude to XNR, uh, which again got everybody even more excited. And then they did stage two. With, and I like the stages. You can't raise everything with one Kickstarter. And most people, it takes a long time for people to believe, to get involved, to care enough, to want to do something. And so you get a small faction come on board. They believe in what you're doing. But if you don't show that you know what to do with that money, 
it's going to be hard for them to stay on board with you. And I think building it, stage one, stage two, stage three, in each stage, they're proving to you that they know what to do with that money, which only gets you more excited, makes you want to be more involved, and you want to support them even more. So the second Kickstarter raised a tremendous amount of money, close to a million. And then they're now probably going to do stage three because they they are, like I said, I haven't been involved in a production in a long time, although I must say working with my good friend uh, Doogie on After the Harvest, which is a Mad Max pilot that I did with uh, Vernon Wells, uh, one of the great producers I've ever worked with in orchestrating a set, using money wisely. So I have had the fortune of working with a couple of really, I think, geniuses when it comes to putting productions together. A lot of filmmakers are very talented, but they never learn the business of filmmaking or how to uh, choreograph and set up a film shoot and really maximize their dollar. Uh, and, and these guys seem to have that built-in gene, that built-in wiring. Uh, and just to watch them go at it, how they put it all together, has been honestly an education, a PhD education for me. And every young filmmaker can learn from this. But watching again on this uh, XNR, he, he was not only artful in how they set it up, how they built the relationship to the fans, how they have built proof of technology and proof of concept and how they're building a relationship and how they're doing it in stages and not rushing like so many people do. Mm-hmm. Rush into production. Right. When they're underfunded. They, don't, they haven't thought it through and they end up with not enough money or they have to cut corners or they don't have the money for the post and then it sits there for two years and then it takes forever before they get it out. So a lot of projects sit there going nowhere for years and it's not the fault of the filmmaker. They just never got that education that they should have got out of any quality film school. Mm-hmm. So here, Alec, because he's, he's a complete businessman he, and because he's also willing to... I mean, I've never seen a man, whatever he doesn't know, he'll go learn. I mean, he's going to actually, because he is so, this Garth of Izar has been a quest for him. He's not interested in being an actor, making a career in acting. But for whatever reasons, this Garth of Izar is a character he has always wanted to play, and he's always wanted to build this story. But did he let his ego go, oh, you know, it's my project, I can do whatever I want, and I get to be the, no. no. He has been in acting class. Not only in acting class, he's been in multiple acting classes, doing more training than every young actor I've met in the past 10 years. Wow. Most actors put a minimal amount of hours into their training. He's putting, he's like going after his PhD in acting. And the guy has grown immensely from where he was to where he is now. So I take my hat off to him because he's willing to back up whatever he decides to do with actual dedication, commitment, and hard work. So, again, watching him in business and watching him tackle this character that he's playing in this film has, has astounded me. And he's take, he doesn't rush. He is taking the time to do it right, to get all his ducks in a row, you know, to find the right sound stages. he got these great warehouses that he got a much better deal in, and they've got them for over three years, and they're refurbishing them as, as sound stages. And they're building the sets and they're doing it all absolutely right. And he's really impeccable in how he goes after building the team. Not only the actors, but the team. I was one of the first actors he came to. At that point, did I have my doubts? Yeah, because I looked at Alec and I thought, I really like Alec. I know he's a really good businessman, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a good producer. 
honestly. You never know. You know, you could be a doctor or a lawyer. That doesn't mean you're a good brain surgeon. You know, you've got to be a specialist in a particular area. So I didn't really know being a first time out. I've just seen too many, I hate to say it, train wrecks and nightmares. People with a lot of ambition and and honestly, when they get into it, they make a, not only a billion mistakes, which I understand is part of the process, but honestly, very rarely do these productions come out very well. Um, and I was blown away by the people he put together, the time he took, how patient he was, not to rush, not to push, and how he educated himself, and then how he, he, he's operating for me like a seasoned producer who's been in this business 20 years, a successful producer who really knows how to put it together. He seems to know inherently what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and he does it right. And he does it on a professional level. And every step of the way, everybody that's gotten involved that kind of was suspicious because when some of these these indie projects come after some of these well-seasoned, mm-hmm. well-experienced actors, you know, they're very tenuous, afraid to commit to these things because – so often they turn out like little crazy nightmares and, uh, you know, well-intentioned nightmares. And, and so, but I, when they started talking about this Klingon general, uh, I love Klingons, but I love the, I mean, I love Klingons. I just think there's something so inherently interested in the warrior code, you know, the code of the warrior. And I, I've always loved every movie, whether it's Last of the Samurai um, you know, Kutsumoto, um, the 300, you know, Braveheart, doesn't matter. There's, there's something about the warrior spirit. And I always saw beyond the kind of Klingon caricatures, those over, the overblown Klingons, you know, mm-hmm. which is fun. That's, you know, there's, there's room for every version of Klingon. But I always love the more grounded, intelligent, visionary, but still with that fire of, of that, the, the, the militaristic fire of the coat of the warrior. There's a like the, the, the samurai really capture that. It, it, it's, 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 it's almost like the poet warriors. It's, it's, it's not obje- about killing is not what it's about, but it is about putting yourself up against the impossible and challenging yourself to, to do extraordinary things, to find that extraordinary power within you to overcome impossible obstacles. And and there's something in that always attracted me. So as I got more into this Klingon and started talking to uh, the director, Chris and Alec, the more we got into Karn and who he was and who he could be, and and I, the more interested I got. It became almost a Shakespearean character for me, uh, like Hamlet. It just the complexity, the depth of this man, the wisdom of this man, the all that stuff. And then as I got more into the Klingons, realizing that you know. A Kling- the Klingons were a highly sophisticated technological society that were way ahead of all these other cultures. Yeah. These are extraordinary, you know, beings. So I, you know, it gave me some latitude in terms of trying to find my way into Karn, who he is and how I wanted to play him. And like I tell people, even in Prelude, it's only a beginning. I mean, I'm just... Every step of the way, I'm getting to know him more, and I'm getting, I'm finding my way into his rhythm, his energy. So it's an ever, it's it's a growing thing. It's a, it's an evolution, which is what every actor loves. We love roles like this to challenge us, 
uh, and keep making us go deeper and question and find all the nuance of that character. So again, when they first talked to me, I was interested, but as I talked more, it got more and more interesting. And then as we really got into the character and, and they were so open to dialoguing how Karn could be put together and, and we were all on the same page. And then I started getting excited about that. But then when I saw them do the Kickstarter and then do the production, the actual shooting of the prelude, I was blown away by the artistry, the professionalism. Um, they, everybody knew what they were doing. It was one of the most organized, grounded sets I've ever been on. And then to watch the, the final results of it, I mean, every step of the way, I've just been blown away. And uh, I have grown in my confidence and belief and what's possible here. And I think what they're doing is, is groundbreaking. They're, they're demonstrating that an indie Trek film is possible and can be done on a, uh, a micro budget compared to what studios do these films for and yet can still be on the same level as those studio films. Um, you know, a studio film, all the money in the world doesn't necessarily make a better movie. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, as we all know, we've seen some pretty big so-called blockbusters that stunk. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, yes. Like, like Chappie, okay? <laughs> One of the worst. I can't believe the same people that did District 9 made Chappie. And the idea and concept is brilliant, but the writing and execution of that movie, what a disappointment. Oh, anyway, man. never. That's another subject. So, uh, so going back to character for a second, Richard. You know, you brought up a good point. This your Klingon Karn is kind of an incarnation of Klingons we've not seen in a little while in later incarnations of Star Trek. And for me, it was a little reminiscent of, or, or maybe even inspired by um, someone with whom you used to work on on Battlestar, John Colicos, who played the first Klingon. Um, what can you tell us about Karn's backstory? Do you know much of it at this point? Uh, no, I don't. In fact, I'm now, um, I mean, I in my own head yeah. kind of play with ideas, but I don't know the official backstory of him. No, no. By the way, I had to do the same thing for, uh, for Zarek. Really? I had no backstory on Zarek. So I created one in my own head. And the funny part is that when they wrote the four part, uh, dynamite comic book, uh, story of Zarek. It was pretty close to what I had made up in my head uh, because I had I I, I kind of saw him, you know, like in a sense, a little bit like Braveheart. And I don't mean that in the uh, cliche way, just because, oh, I got to play a hero. No, for me, he was the he was the antihero because all through history, uh, many people have stood against governments, stood against tyranny. And as, as we know, history is written by the winner. Right. A lot of those people were looked at as the bad guy. And I thought. Here's a guy that's fighting for democracy and fighting for um, consensus, fighting for accountability, and has seen governments go awry. Governments lose, take on too much power, too much control, and, uh, and also people giving up their power and control and allowing governments to do that. And then he saw that happen in his own planet, and then now it happened again on Galactica, uh, where the people, out of their own fear allowed the government to have too much power and they suspended democracy, you know, and I, and I thought, you know, very powerful subject matter. But again, it was interesting how they kept aspecting me as the bad guy and they were doing far worse things than they accused me of doing easily. You know, I, I just wish to God that when I had that encounter with 
uh, Adama in the prison cell, and he read off this list. I, I, could, I wish I could have laughed at that and brought out my list. And my list is three times longer than his. I would have loved to have read my list about what Rosalind and Adama did, you know. Easily. And then I, yeah. and then I would have said, just as I would have said, I remember, and I, but I do make the statement. I said, you know, the, the truth is there's, there's not much difference between you and I, Adama. I said that. I said the only difference is you've got that, that uniform on. You have, the, you have the power and the authority. But we're, we're, we're both trying to do the right thing. And we're both, whatever we've done has always been to try to do the right thing. But the trouble is, you know, we did a lot of bad things trying to do the right thing, right? Right. Um, and anyway, so, so uh, we're back to, uh, uh, to Karin here. Um, so anyway, it's been a, uh, like I said, I'm going to get together with one of the writers in the Trek that does Star Trek uh, novels. Um, and we're going to work on his backstory and his story. So I'm going to have a lot more information on that uh, coming up, more specific information. Uh, but my only thought of it is I think he's the kind of man that worked his way up. I think he came from wealth, but I think that he shunned that the um, – the, uh, what's the word? His family's um, uh, gold card uh, opportunities – because he wanted to do it on his own. Yeah. So okay. I think that he worked his way up the military from the bottom. I think he took it the hard way. And I think he fought in battles. And I think he was a grunt. And he worked his way up to the top, even though he could have taken the easy path. And, and, and obviously been able to, uh, to move much faster. But I think he's the kind of man that, that literally, honestly wanted to, uh, to prove to himself he could do it. But he also felt like leadership. Uh, if you want to lead men, then you have to know... You know, have to know your men. And the only way you know your men is that you've, you've been what your men have been through. You right. understand where they come from. And, and I also think that he, he, uh, he's, a, in a sense, a philosopher. I mean, I, I, you know, they, they talk about the poet warriors. You know, the great generals were philosophers. They, they, they saw a larger picture of life. And I think even when generals of opposing sides got together, they were able to sit down and have a drink and find a lot of commonality, you know. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they're, they're fighting the same thing. Sometimes they're having to play the chess game. They're having to fight each other. And yet they see sometimes the futility of it. They see the, you know, the, they have to deal with their governments and their dictates of their governments. And then they have to try to wage the best battle they can. But many times they see the larger picture. They may even see that why this is not going to make sense. You're going to lose a lot of people here. But they're given their orders and now they got to make the best of what their orders are, and I, I kind of. But but beyond that, I do think that uh, um, Zarek, I'm not Zarek, sorry, uh, Karn is a chess player, uh, like all great generals, and they they do on a certain level. They understand first of all the the humanity of war, but at the same time, they also engage in the uh, the art form of war, and that's. I think that's where they they really what's the word um, get excited and really glom onto is is that art form of out strategizing, out thinking, out playing their their opponent. If it was a if it was a benign game on on you know a, a game that we play online, right, where millions of people may die but they don't really die, but you're out strategizing the enemy, 
you know, he would love playing those games. I think they, they love the art form of war, but they also have to deal. And this is the other part, and I told Alec this. We don't see this very often, but I do think that you've got to delve into the dark side of these generals and realize that they carry a weight that no other man carries. They carry the weight of every bad decision, of all the lives that are lost. And uh, I think a great general has to be strong enough to not, uh, what's the word, not disengage, but to be able to handle it and still move forward and not let it pull him down into that, into the, to the abyss. Mm-hmm. And it takes an incredibly strong human being, I think, in order to do that. And so, again, I think there's a lot of dimensions to, uh, to these characters. And that's one of the things I want to, it looks like, and I can't wait to read the script now. I just got it sent to me. I want to read the script and see where they've gone with it to understand how they're evolving these characters. Because I think what can make XNR maybe a kind of a really, what's the word, standalone Star Trek experience is that they can go where no other Star Trek show has gone yet. Right. Um, they can, they can uh, go into a topography that's never been explored that's actually part of the Star Trek canon. And they can bring some other dimensions to Star Trek outside the box without losing the energy and the, the feeling of what we love about Star Trek, but they can build upon that and maybe even re-energize that. Although I have to say I do love the movies, so hate me, but I love the no. movies. It's interesting you say that because I think to a point, Prelude has already done that. It is so well done and it is so I, – I mean I, I, I've watched it probably 30 times and every time the final scene with the Klingon ship opening its torpedo bay and then it just fades out to black. I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be yeah. more to watch. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is, is when watching your portrayal of Karn, right. to me he seems to be a military genius who really prides himself on his knowledge of how to win the war that he's in. Um, but at the same time, he's menacing. He can he appears that he can be ruthless when needs to be, but he looks really pissed off that his superiors didn't listen to him in regards to the D seven. That one scene when you said that we would have defeated the Federation is probably my favorite part of the entire prelude film because of the emotion that you show and it and is that something that you just kind of came up with, or was it really something that was worked into no, uh, the script? It was thrown in. T- he threw that line to me after we, we had finished filming all the lines I had. I actually had the wrong script. They gave me the script, and then they didn't give me the rewrite script. So I don't know what was in the rewritten script, except that Chris threw out some additional lines for me. So that was one of the additional lines. He just threw it out, and I did it in the moment. Well, it was I great. Did. And all I can tell you is I, I like doing that. Um, because it allowed me to express the frustration that generals have with bureaucracy, with the powers that be, with, you know, I hate to say it, even in our, our own wars that we're engaging, we put men into life and death circumstances and we tie one hand behind their back. I'm sorry. Uh, war is war. And I think if you decide to go to war, you don't put a man in harm's way unless he has full access to to protecting himself and protecting his life, his very valuable life. And I think that we have done that over and over again. And I think that, you know, um, for me, that's 
that's an aspect of of this with um, with Exenar and Karn, and is that he he doesn't want to lose lives, but what he does love, he actually the the the, the com, not the complexity, but the 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 challenge is that he loves the art form of the game, but he hates to lose lives, right? So if it was a game online, he would love that. But here you've got to deal with actually losing lives. And here they finally, because the Klingons, any great athlete, any great warrior doesn't want to fight somebody who doesn't have any skill. I don't want, you know, winning sounds like, oh, I just want to win. No. The Klingons are hungry to be tested. Mm -hmm. It's part of their anatomy. Right. They love being challenged, and they finally, after this four years, are challenged by the humans who are able to come back, come back, come back, and keep getting back up and getting stronger and stronger until they're really able to challenge you know, the Klingons, which is the first time the Klingons can have real respect for the humans, right? right? Yep. And I love that fact. I love that whole thing. But he is frustrated because now that the game has become even, now that the game has really become competitive, now that I'm having a real fight on my hands, the, the best fight I've had ever, and my hand is tied behind my back by my own government. Right. And I'm not able to fully use the skill, talents, and abilities and, and technology that we have. And so I think, you know, if you give it your all and you lose, and you lose a great fight, and it's, it's if you fought ten times, maybe one side would win five, the other would win five, Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no greater adversary than somebody like that, right? right? Yep. You can't wait to fight him again. I'm going to beat you next time and because you're right there. Well, I mean, here, here, he, he knows he can win. He sees what's happening. Mm-hmm. And all along the time, he's had to, not just now, he's had to fight the bureaucracy because they took the humans too lightly. They didn't have enough respect for them, and they have been too slow to move and too slow to respond. And here I'm on the front line. I'm seeing it as it unfolds. And they're way back there. And they're making the decisions. I mean, in truth, they should probably transfer the power and decision-making to the man on the front line, the man who's overseeing and seeing. Once you decide to go to battle, that's the man who's right in the thick of it, who sees the, the playing field and needs to make those decisions. But right. I'm surprised that the Klingons actually didn't have that kind of structure set up since they're a militaristic society, you know. The humans, it's expected because it's not a militaristic society. They don't function that way. So the bureaucracy would really be a trouble and a problem for them. And yet, the reason why they're able to move faster than here our militaristic society that's used to responding faster is because... It was all or nothing. The humans were going to be annihilated. And like Americans, until we get our asses kicked, we don't wake up. Right. We're always slow to bring it together. They always say, remember in World War II and the Yamamoto, he goes like this, I think I'm afraid we've awoken a sleeping giant. Right. And the truth is when we see all the stupidity that happened before the attack at Pearl Harbor, right? All the stupidity and the naivete and all the mistakes we made, and all the lives that didn't have to be lost. But once America gets their ass kicked, they wake up, and then watch out. 
because when Americas put aside their differences and come together, there's no force on earth, I think, that can withstand. Why? I hate to say it. It's because we're probably the most diverse culture in the world. We have every culture, nationality, background living in America. We're made up of the world. The world lives here in America. Right. So anyway, that, that was the frustration. It was not just a frustration at one particular thing. It was a frustration at we could have won. We could beat them and we could have you know, survived. And now we've been pushed. But at the same time, it's the first time he has real respect for his adver- adversary. And I think that's, that's actually exciting for him. I mean, that's the most exciting. A Klingon would rather go down in flames meeting a worthy adversary than to have victory over an unworthy adversary. Absolutely. Without you know, doubt. It's a little bit of that mentality of I'll die in battle, like the 300, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned you got the script recently. What's the status of production now, and is it still scheduled to start shooting in October? Yeah, October. Excellent. Yep. Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> oh, I know. I can't wait. Well, we were going to shoot in June. Oh, we were, thanks, thanks for telling us that, that Richard. We were, no, we were supposed to shoot in June, um, and uh, but that's where I respect Alec is because right. you know it. It always takes longer. Let's face it, that, that longer than you expect to get everything together. The trouble with some people is they rush things and they push and then they force themselves into production long before they're ready. Everybody's in a hurry to roll the camera. But uh, Alec, being the pragmatic, very grounded businessman that he is, uh, is making sure everything's lined up correctly. And um, it'll, like I said, when it gets filmed, uh, it'll be done right. And um, everybody will be ready. And we'll be able to do something really, really exciting. And I, like I said, I'm, it's, this is the most exciting project I've been a part of in a long time because of the, not only the, the, the chunk that they're biting off, the, the immense challenge, but the fact that for the first time I see them willing to do, to take the steps, put the work in, and do everything necessary in order to meet that challenge. Mm-hmm. A lot of people bite off a big challenge and then they kind of just flake out and kind of, you know, they, they, I think the fear of what they just bought off scares them and they go into denial and then they just end up throwing something together half-assed, right, and, and destroying it here, they, they, look, they, they know what they're doing. And I think they're going to do something really quite extraordinary uh, and groundbreaking. And I think it could change the topography of, uh, of Trek films, Trek indie films, where studios in between maybe something. They, in fact, maybe at some point they're going to end up, because they don't seem to love doing all these sci-fi series a lot of the things that fans want, they don't want to do. They don't seem to like any of these space shows. Mm-hmm. But you know something? If the fan productions, and by the way, I don't even want to use fan production. Fan, Ron Moore was a fan of right. Star Trek. Yeah. Right. So we're talking about creative, empowered, talented people who are fans of a show, who want to create and do something in that world, in that universe. And you know, if the studio isn't doing something and somebody puts together something really viable and amazing, why not license it, make it part of the, the Star Trek Absolutely. world and universe, and, and then, you know, team up, right. partner up. You know, why not? If somebody knows what they're doing, 
If somebody just kind of does something that's kind of fun and entertaining, great. But if somebody really takes it to a, to a whole other level that engages all the fans and the Star Trek audience, well, in be- when, when studios don't seem to have the time or the money or the will to serve that audience and yet somebody can do it for far less money than they can do it for, here they can – it's a money-winning partnership where they, they can sit there and, yeah, they can have quality control and some kind of, you know, over overseeing – but they allow productions like this to go forward. They monetize them. They license them. And it becomes a win-win for everybody. Right. So I think this could open that door for, for that kind of a thing to happen. I have one very strange question about <laughs> Karn before we get to what you've got coming up in the near future. I know what he's um, going to ask. And, it's, and it's, been an, it's been something that Bill and I have been going back and forth with all week of whether or not I would actually ask it. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. Watching your performance as Karn. Um, I'd like to know all of the non-genetically altered Klingons that we've seen in all of the movies had really bad teeth. <laughs> but you, as Karn, have perfect teeth. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're perfect. How, how, do you see them, how do you see my teeth? I never smile. Yeah, but when you're talking, you can see them. Because, you know, like people like General Martok on Deep Space Nine, he had a fang right. that was sticking up one way. Right. Is that just for... Ease of dialogue, or is there possibly? I really don't know. To tell you the truth, that might be something. Uh, when, we did, when we did Prelude, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> the Klingons I told of that you it was a strange question. The Klingons <laughs> of that not, era had a great dental plan. It's not a bad question because the question would be if there's a way, you know, if if that if there was some way to do that where it's workable and it's not going to impede me talking, mm-hmm. um, and. I mean, I, I have no problem with them doing that, uh, working on that aspect of it. But I think you have to remember the prelude, first of all, was just going to be us not talking in character. Yeah. We're just going to talk as us. Right. Talking about our character. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we just decided to go with the character. So, you know, everything kind of moved very quickly at that, that point in time. And I think we were playing with the look. And working out different things in the costume, I mean, the makeup department and going through all that stuff. And to tell you the truth, no one ever even mentioned the teeth thing. It's funny because when I watch it, I, I sit there and I, and I notice that. And then I also started thinking about when the Klingons from the original series looked more human because we found out there was a genetic alteration that took place. Your yeah. Klingon ridges aren't as prominent as a lot of Klingons. So I'm kind of going with, oh, maybe he's one of the first ones that experimenting with this whole genetic alteration. It's just something that I figured well, I, I'd like, ask you. I like the fact that, that it's not – I don't like, honestly, the look of the, the mm-hmm. big – that's not – it almost looks like a prosthetic. It, it looks it, – for me, it doesn't look really real. I, yeah. find, I find the look that they gave me far more, far more kind of real yep. and believable and not exaggerated. So again, I think, uh, I think they're playing with that whole idea and concept and um, in a sense trying to find a uh, – trying to find maybe a – I mean when we looked at uh, Christopher Plummer. Yes. Yeah. Very, very small ridges. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Did he have teeth? You know what? I, I just watched Star Trek Six over the weekend, and I don't recall. I'm going to have to go back and look. I know, and I don't even think that um, – I don't think his, he did. I don't think his, uh, his, his first in command, his general uh, – The chancellor didn't have Ch- it. Yeah, Chang. Yeah. Chang. Chang didn't have that either. No, he didn't. I'm actually – I just Googled it. He's got perfect teeth. 
Yeah, so I think they're going from that – they're kind of using that kind of a format. I think that's what the decision was, kind of unspoken decision. But I think that's what was in the thinking there. And, and you know, I kind of like that version, although I think there's – again, there was something in uh, – I love the fact that they were bringing a depth and kind of a more sophisticated um, approach to the Klingons. And then at the same time, though – you still have to feel the danger and the fact that they are – there's a certain – and I want to call it sophisticated primitive quality. It's – no matter how sophisticated they are, they have lived in a world like the 300 where they challenge themselves constantly, right? And the 300 is a good one because they're – that's a warrior society, and so, therefore, they look at war differently than most people, and and the, the the it brings out this this ferocity, this warrior spirit, you know, that comes out. And I and I think for somebody that's not brought up in a culture, a warlike culture or society, mm-hmm. you know, just like the samurai, the samurai could be lethal, could be terrifying, you know. The power and the thing, the, 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 the whole energy. And yet they also could be, at the same time, the flip side of the coin was highly sophisticated, right? Highly cultured. And I love that combination. And I would have to say that probably the Japanese samurai is probably the best for me template mm-hmm. for a Klingon. It is. And your sword kind of reminded me samurai a little bit when you were sitting in your chair with that, with yeah. that blade. Yeah. Well, we can't wait to see what happens when you start filming in October. We're all going to, we all can't wait to, and I've been keeping up with uh, the um, uh, Axonar page, Star Trek Um Aside from Karn, um, we know that uh, you've got a uh, WonderCon event coming up in Anaheim, California uh, next right. weekend, April 3rd through 5th. Uh, can yep. you tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing there? Um, well, on Friday night, I'm going to do my everything uh, you ever wanted to know about show business, uh, the entertainment uh, business of today? Um, you know, from the filmmaking to the acting to the writing to all those different aspects of it. Um, so I, I always do the kind of a workshop. Sometimes I, I think I'm focusing more on the acting, but it's always about the business. It's, it's, not, it's the art and business of the acting entertainment industry uh, that I get into. So I, I, I don't teach in a traditional way. I'm... Um, I teach in a far more, I would want to call it, um, provocative way. Uh, my whole thought of it is, is that my talent anyway, is, uh, I, and I've done this in my other Tony Robbins type seminars, but I, I'm very intuitive about people. I see where they're blocked. I see where their energy is blocked. I see where their talent is blocked. I see what's holding them back from really using their talents and abilities. And uh, what I do is I will shape a exercise, I shape things in order for them to process through, move through those walls and blocks and unlock their talent and take it to the next level. Allow them to more deeply, more powerfully connect to material, learn how to open up and let that material channel through them so that they're not acting out of their head, they're acting out of that deeper, more intuitive part. Um, And then the same thing goes for the business side of it really learning to look at the larger picture and realize that every artist has to build their business side of the equation. The business side protects the artist side. And artists that don't have the business side developed, 
Many of them languish. Many talented artists languish on the side of the road. Uh, you want to build both sides of the or they they end up finding somebody who uses their talent and ability, but they end up getting raped and pillaged. You know, so you got to build that that both sides of the equation. You got to build the the business and the artistic side, just like the filmmaker who wants to roll the camera and wants to get in the editing room and do all that. He's got to learn the business of the art as well. Otherwise, your movie doesn't go anywhere. You know, and a lot of people put a lot of time and energy into that movie. And it's a responsibility to learn the complete art of filmmaking so that you can take a film from beginning to end and get it out there to the world or get it out to a marketplace so that everybody that participated gets to benefit from that. You know, it's, it's not fair to ask people to put their time and energy into something that never sees the light of day. Well, it sounds like... Um... You've also got another project coming up. Uh, you're directing. Oh, by my, by, my Battlestar panel, by the way, is on oh. Sunday, I think, at 1230. Oh, yes. um, and then I'm doing a writing panel with the Winter Twins, which is at 130 at WonderCon. Excellent. So you're directing a project called With Honors. Um, and I, yeah. I guess it's about a Vietnam vet dealing with the aftermath of war. Um, can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that? Well, this came to me a couple of years ago before uh, Sniper came out. Um, and obviously there wasn't a lot of war movies coming out, but with the success of Sniper, obviously a lot more people were interested in movies that deal with war. Um, and what's so powerful about this is that, you know, I don't know if you're engaged or involved in the military world at all. Um, actually one of the guys, the guy that runs military.com bought my Viper, uh, that I had from icons, um, that I had up on, uh, an eBay auction. So and I got to, I flew up there and I got to know him and uh, got to know his world. Um, but anyway, um, this uh, with honors uh, came to me a couple of years ago and I love the project because it really I don't know about you, but I've always had strong feelings. I mean, I if I, I wish I could have put my own writing about what was going to happen in Iraq into a bottle and buried it and brought it out because everything I thought was going to happen happened. And my my thought was it wasn't even about going in or not going in. If you're going to do something, you got to do it all the way. Right. And then you got to research and and be dedicated to doing it right, having the right equipment, researching the area, the feudalism of the area, all the the history of the area, how they fight, how those clans fight, how they operate, how they war against each other, their style of fighting, learning about your your so-called enemy. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, if you're going to go in there, you've got to go in there thinking the long, long term. Are you going in there to stay in there? If you think you're going to go in there, obviously, and somehow get to Baghdad, now you've won. And now you can go away and go home. You've won. No, you haven't won anything. You know, yeah. this is a country in turmoil. And you can't really, you know, what do they say? I think uh, Donald Trump got in trouble when he not only bought and sold businesses, when he actually tried to run a business. Because <laughs> he wasn't good at that. He right. was good at buying and selling. Okay, uh, Countries. You go in there and you attack your enemy and you so-called defeat them and then you install somebody, I guess, you know, or the government that mm-hmm. you want or you want a democratic government in a country that doesn't know what democracy is, um, you know, that has all these, these tribes of, and cultures that have been battling each other for thousands of years, right? So again, you know, you, 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 we, we didn't think through anything. And then we put our young men 
into battle with the wrong equipment, and many of them lost their legs, lost their, half their body, had lots, there were so many injuries where, where they didn't die, but they had all the many limbs missing because of all the IUDs, because of all the bombs and all the things and all the, the equipment that didn't have proper armor. Uh, there was a million things that were not taken care of. So again, that the, the decision to do anything always requires thinking it through. Um, I, I lost track of where I was going. <laughs> what, what, what? I'll, I'll say one thing. The passion certainly comes through in your character. So that, that's, well, the, a, that's the, a good thing. <laughs> well, the, what was the question? Though? I just want to let me. I had asked you about uh, with honors. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, going back to that. So I'm, I've always been fascinated by the military agenda. And I'm amazed by people that put their lives on the line. And everybody does it for different reasons. Some people didn't expect to do it. But the war experience, because my brother went through it, uh, changes everybody. You, you do not come back the same person. Uh, and what pisses me off again is that we send our soldiers into danger. And yet we don't honor them when they come home giving them the support that they deserve. Right. My thought, anybody that puts their life on the line for us, the rest of their life should be supported. Absolutely. They, they, yes. they, honestly. Um, so these men come back, and because they don't get the help that they need, they don't get the counseling they need, the therapy they need, we see all these crazy things happen by so-called, I don't want to say so-called, good people put into horrible circumstances where they went over a line, right. a humanity line, and probably did things they'll never be able to live with or forgive themselves for, or they saw things happen that they'll never be able to live with or forgive themselves for, and it screws up their whole psyche. And they come back, and nobody pays attention, and then all of a sudden what happens? They either become addicts, they walk away and kill somebody, just like this man that killed you know, um, the guy that, that, that was in Sniper. You know, God knows... Yep. The, I'm anybody that's been to war, and again, I don't know his whole story or what happened or didn't happen. The point I'm making is, is that you can't judge these men based on what our knowledge is here in this world of human beings. Even in this world, any one of us is capable of doing horrific things given the right circumstances. Any one of us in a moment could cross that line, and and it might be the only time you ever crossed it. And yet, some traumatic thing happens to you. You do something, and you don't. Some anger came out on you. You pushed somebody too hard. You, you know, something engaged inside of you. It doesn't make you a horrible person, but something pushed that button. And every one of us needs to have a little bit more compassion, understanding, and empathy for these guys that have served in these war zones. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is they didn't. So this follows a man that was a Medal of Honor winner who walked away from the war because he lost all his men on a particular patrol. This is a man who used to pride himself on doing the dedicated work of not only getting his men in, but getting his men out, okay? And on this one mission, all goes south, and he lost everybody, but he did extraordinary things trying to save them. He actually gets captured, uh, and then he escapes, um, but they give him all these medals, and he doesn't want them. And then, of course, he doesn't get the help or the care mm -hmm. from the military, and he walks away, and he's on the street for 30 years. And then we catch up with them 30 years later. And uh, it's kind of a, a story of, in a sense, of his redemption. But it's also a story that unfolds and shows you, in a sense, the culture, that, that the military culture back home and the public, 
how the public actually deals with these men and women who have served rather than honoring and appreciating and valuing them or giving lip service to it, that there's a real depth of understanding of what these men have done and the sacrifice they have made. So it goes into all of that. It's a powerful story written by an ex-Navy SEAL who went to Vietnam and got captured by the Vietnamese, by the Viet Cong, and escaped and was tortured and escaped. So there's a lot of... uh, Powerful, powerful flashback sequences written through it that show us what happened to this man and why he lost his way. Wow. Is there a, a time frame of when we can uh, be looking for this with honors? Well, at the moment, I went back to look at locations and talk to the investors. And, you know, they're, they're working on putting the money together. But I want to do a Kickstarter campaign because I think yeah. there's a large military um, family out there. Um, that would probably donate fifty, hundred bucks a piece. Yep. You know, which is not going to take anything from anybody for a movie like this that addresses what so few people understand. Right. Um, or and, and I just think that this is this kind of movie doesn't uh, glorify violence, but it it really takes you in to what war can do to a human being. Right. And that's why I even told the writer, I said, don't hold back on these flashback scenes. Show us. Show us so that everybody watching this movie, okay, is going to know why this man is the way he is. Wow. Well, we certainly will be looking for the Kirk's, uh, the, the Kickstarter, and um, we are also uh, uh, thrilled to be able to talk to you about these different projects, Richard. Um, do you have any um, specific places where any of your fans can go to uh, keep up with what you're doing uh, or well, reach out on social Katz. media? Then go to richardhatch.com. By the way, I do uh, coaching. I do uh, life coaching and acting coaching online. So you can go to richardhatch.com and you can check that out. I do hour sessions with people all over the country. I even work – I'm working with a, also an acting group that's going to be doing online seminars and workshops with groups of people. And I'll be teaching online seminars and workshops. But right now I'm doing one-on-one uh, both life coaching and and like I said, I used to do uh, three-day boot camps, Tony Robbins style, in my own way. Boot camps, uh, teaching people the art of marketing, raising money, all the different things that go into taking an idea and developing it. Um, all the things that get in the way of people leveraging their talents and abilities into the marketplace. Um, so again, I do uh, do those things. They can check that out. They can go over to BattlestarGalactica.com mm-hmm. uh, that I'm co-owner of. Um, and then they can go to... Um, Facebook, and I'm all over Facebook and Twitter, um, so I'm I'm everywhere. Excellent, yes. I, I'm, this, I'm a god, Captain <laughs> Apollo. I'm a god. <laughs> uh, Richard, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to to speak with us a little bit tonight. Um, we're looking forward to getting it out there for everyone to listen to. Can I say one last real quick thing? Absolutely. Okay, I'm doing Comic Con at Sea. Yes. Oh, right. This right. Through June, uh, with a whole bunch of actors. Um, uh, from both Battlestar and a whole bunch of other shows. Buffy. And Buffy. <laughs> and uh, and uh, honestly, it's going to be uh, really quite amazing itinerary. I mean, the, they're going all through the Mediterranean there, starting in Barcelona. And it's uh, I think it's the first 7th or 8th of June. But check it out. You can go to my Facebook page and find all the ads. Or you can go to just put in Comic-Con at Sea. Uh, and you should come up with the website and check it out. But come join us. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to teach. A lot of people are doing show business panels on there about show business, the art of filmmaking, editing, uh, costume making. And I'm doing my everything you ever wanted to know about show business, uh, which is a workshop for anybody and everybody that ever wanted to have an insight into this 
business, this world that we all live in. Excellent. Uh, folks, he is a man of many talents. He is the one and only Richard Hatch. Can't thank you enough for coming on to the show tonight, sir. Thank you. All right. Much. Best of luck Bye. to Axnar and all of your other projects coming up. Okay. Have a good day, guys. Thank you very much. And Dan, what a great conversation with Richard. He, it was nothing like I imagined he'd be to talk to. Full of energy. Um, he's really psyched about these projects. And after talking to him, I'm even more excited now. How about you? I definitely see how he is a motivational speaker. That's for yeah. sure. Amazing. And I'll tell you, it, we haven't had the opportunity to really talk to a lot of actors about the parts they play. But sitting there listening to him talk about what he thinks in his mind about how this character of Karn is going to be is 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 going to be is amazing. And and I can't wait to see what it looks like when we get more than just five or six snippets in a twenty one minute. Uh, documentary, what it's going to be like when he's playing the main Klingon in this movie and how he's going to try to defeat the Federation. It's going to be awesome. You know, I think the thing that amazed and surprised me the most is that even after all this time, you know, in people's houses, on screens, on television and movies, he is still at his core an actor who's working on his craft every day. Yep, absolutely. I also enjoyed how much passion i didn't expect the first section of our interview when we talked about battlestar to go the length it did because he you can see how much he loved doing that whether it was the 70 uh 78 78 was 78 or whether it was when he was in the rebooted version he loves the story the whole thing he was talking about about the similarities to the holocaust i was i never thought of something like that until he brought it up and it makes perfect sense and it's good to see that somebody who's been involved in the business as long as he has still has that passion, drive, and determination to succeed. I thought it was great. You know, I've seen Richard at a lot of conventions doing signings for fans, and he has that same level of enthusiasm and energy, even just in talking to people one-on-one. So, I mean, it's uh, you can tell it's who he is as a person straight to his core. And, man, what a great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, he's making... a. An appearance that he mentioned at the end of the podcast on uh, Comic-Con at Sea, and we wanted to tell you a little bit more about it, um, because there's a special promotion running until March 31st. So if you go to Comic-Con at Sea.com, you can take advantage of that special promotion. Uh, the cruise is happening on the Allure of the Seas, which is a beautiful cruise ship, and it's making its European debut this summer with Ports of Call in Spain, France, and Italy. So yeah, to find out more, go to Comic-Con at Sea.com. Awesome. And uh, one of the other things that we wanted to touch on real quick is he did talk about his website, richardhatch.com, as well as battlestargalactica.com. You can follow him on Twitter, he did mention, but just for those who want to follow him, his uh, Twitter handle is Thumbfighter. Would have liked to ask him what that meant. Didn't get the opportunity. That's okay. And he's also on Facebook at Richard Hatch Actor. Uh, He's on other places, I'm sure, Battlestar Galactica, Facebook sites and such. But uh, it was was great talking to him. Had a fantastic time. Well, Dan, now that we've completed the Richard Hatch conversation. Let's move on to the next big item for this podcast. Um, The big giveaway that we're announcing right here, right now, that starts as soon as people are done listening to this. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more? Yeah, it's uh, it's big. Um, Anybody who loves Star Trek as much as we do is certainly going to love this. Uh, We've got three prizes we're going to be giving away. 
the first prize is going to be a library of Blu-ray movies of the first 10 Star Trek films. Uh, every film from the motion picture right up through Nemesis. Uh, all the films have been digitally remastered. Wrath of Khan has actually been fully restored in HD with brilliant picture quality and 7.1 uh, Dolby True HD. Uh, there's going to be two hour, uh, excuse me. There's going to be two special bonus discs with exclusive content, behind the scenes bonuses, um, and over fifteen. <laughs> I'm sorry, we had a little joke about this, and I and it just kind of popped up on me, and of course Bill started laughing on screen. So, um, there's get back to what I was talking about. There's going to be fifteen hundred minutes of content total. I mean, it's it's really a great package. Um, and the approximate value of these 10 Blu-ray films is over $200. Wow. So uh, that's the first prize. Second prize is going to be a $35 e-gift card to Amazon. And third prize, which might be my favorite, is an exclusive T-shirt from the Trek Geek Shop. Well, there's gonna, you know, one lucky winner, one lucky listener of the Trek Geeks podcast is going to win that Blu-ray movie set. The winners are going to be selected randomly, and to qualify, we're asking people to subscribe to the Trek Geeks podcast and submit reviews of the show on iTunes. Now, you'll need an iTunes account and access to iTunes on a computer. Unfortunately, the website won't cut it in this case. But once you do that, all you have to do is fill out the contest entry form on the Trek Geeks website, and you'll be entered in the drawing. Yep, and uh, giveaway is going to be open only to U.S. residents, and your review must be in the U.S. iTunes store. Um, so for those of you worldwide listening, maybe we'll be able to do something uh, in the future. But the contest is going to start right now after you've d- after you're done listening to this podcast. Um, and it's going to run until April 30th, and the winner will be announced on the episode of the Trek Geeks podcast that will be premiering May 3rd of 2015. Uh, also keep in mind you can only enter the contest once. Um, so uh, what you need to do is uh, you can only really – do it once because you can only do one review on iTunes. So as many times as people want to, you know, just keep hitting that submit button. No, not going to work. <laughs> and save that review text too, because you'll need it to submit in your contest entry form. And that's also going to make us make it easier for us to find your review um, so that we can, you know, match them up and, and make sure you get entered in the contest. So for more details uh, for the contest entry form and for the complete contest rules, head on over to trekgeeks.com slash contest. That's trekgeeks.com slash contest. Yes, and also uh, please feel free to share it in any way you can. Tweet it out. Pin it. We want as many folks as possible to have a shot at winning the Blu-rays as possible, as well as that shirt, folks. And it's uh, again, it's trekgeeks.com slash contest. You are not eligible to win that shirt, Davidson. I just want you to know that right now. Um, uh, all right. Maybe I'll have my wife fill out a form. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's that's not happening. Um, and as always, Dan and I thank you all truly for listening. We appreciate everything you've done to help get us where we are. And uh, we look forward to doing the show every week. And we're glad that you all look forward to listening. So thank you so much. Um, Dan, um, why don't you tell everybody how they can get in touch with us? Yes. Uh, as always, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Skype. Our handle on all three of those sites is Trek Geeks. You can send us an email at trekgeeks at starfleet.com, or you can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 508-784-1701. Individually, Bill's Twitter handle is at trekgeekbill, and mine is at dcdds9. Just always remember that uh, any comments or messages you leave us may be used in a future episode. 
Excellent. And we also want to take special time to thank Five Year Mission. Um, they are all the music you hear on the Trek Geeks podcast, and they're five. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't and that's resist. Dan's rendition, which was melodic and mellifluous, as always. <laughs> Um, but you can listen to all of their songs, uh, all their year one, two, and three albums, um, their original songs based on classic Star Trek episodes, online at fiveyearmission.net. Please go support them and love them. Um, they are doing great stuff. And if you haven't had the chance to listen, please take the time. But for now, um, we will talk to you all next episode, which I guess would be episode nine? Episode nine. Wow. And nine. I'll tell you what, um, I'm not going to give anything away yet, but... We've talked about it a few times. We got some... Richard Hatch is, like, unbelievable. All the people we've had on, unbelievable. We got some real unbelievable stuff coming up in the future. We really do, and we hope you'll be along for the ride. So until next time, live long and prosper. Bye. (laughs) I feel like you're making a hostage tape. was that (laughs) yes thank you oh boy brian i gotta tell you something oh my god oh 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 god is he burning them up (laughs) it's so easy to distract you but (laughs) all i have to do is do the opening note from the match game (laughs) you should name that tune that song if I was a guest, all you'd have to do is and I'd be like I can name that TV game show theme in one note. And then we had Kirstie Alley as a guest on Match Game and oh my god, was there a more boring person ever to be a contestant on a game show? No. 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 Look it up, folks. YouTube it. Check it out. She's like, why am I even here talking to this guy with the big, long microphone? I actually think she was practicing for Savic at that point. Oh, no. No, No, I I totally just made that up. (laughs) We'll ask her when we get her on the show because chances are I'll be able to get her signed on before you do. Wow. Not after I use this as the outtake. (laughs) And there it is. It's all right. Okay.